following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. I thought a little more this week uh, of a clever way to address you, to greet you. Uh, I think there are literally thousands of ways to do this. I'm just going to let you in on this. I have limited brain power, limited creativity, and so this greeting seems to work well. It gets across goodwill, and you understand what I'm saying to you. So the best you're going to get this morning is good morning. For those of you at home that are watching, first of all, we miss you. We love you. Good morning. Um, that's what you're going to get from me as well. We're praying for you. Uh, good morning to you as well. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin by reading verses 16 through 18, and then we'll pray. So take a look, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is the word of God. So that we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we rejoice to know you this morning. Our hope is in you. We come into your presence with singing and thanksgiving and with great expectations. It's an encouraging time, one that reminds us of the heavenly realities one that reminds us that the world is bigger than our own experiences, one that reminds us that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will return. We rejoice in you and in these truths this morning. But Lord, there are many here whose experience has not been one of rejoicing all this week. Some in our midst have had tears for their food this week. Some have poured out their souls to you and some have experienced sorrow. Lord, some have been cast down and some are in turmoil. Some of us even feel as though you have forgotten us when we're oppressed by our enemy and our adversary taunts us. We are like deer who pant after the water because our lives depend on it. We thirst for you, God. We need you to satisfy us with yourself. And so we come to you for life and joy and salvation. Our hope is in you, God. We will praise you. I ask that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In a recent interview on a podcast that I listen to once in a while, uh, Tim Keller, a, a kind of a pastor and theologian you might know, was asked how he's doing uh, in his fight against pancreatic cancer. Um, and his response was both provocative and convicting. He roughly said, you know, I'm not fighting cancer, I'm fighting sin. <laughs> he goes on to explain what he means by this. He says, you know, what he's trying to say is that he wasn't fighting against the curse. He was fighting against his wicked response to the curse. Think that through again. He wasn't, he wasn't fighting against the curse. He's, he's fighting against his wicked response to the curse, his sin. He looks at suffering from what I believe to be a biblical perspective. 
I mean, if you know anything, pancreatic cancer is no joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful in what it does. Some of you know that more closely than others. But the, but the biggest fight of Tim Keller's life is not against pancreatic cancer. It's to put to death the deeds of the body. It's to fight sin. And he recognizes this. And there's something here that you and I actually need to learn. I was reading some articles also from that he had published years before this. And concerning Romans 8, he says this, If you know where you are heading in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pain aren't worth it. The Bible speaks to suffering and helps us understand how we should react to it. Now, I'll start out today by admitting to you that I am a realist. Now, my wife would call me an optimist, and in some ways I understand that, but let me explain what I mean that I am a realist. I mean that I, I have a pretty dire view of what humans can do for themselves to make themselves better. A pretty bad view of history and all the things we've tried to accomplish and where we've come since then. The truth is I would not be a very good humanist. Uh, we, we can't seem to truly solve our problems. We do good things. We make progress. But it seems like whenever we do something well over here and seemingly kind of button it up, later on we didn't know it. two other problems over here pop up that we didn't realize were an effect of trying to fix, fix this one over here. Um, if you know, like, in some of these ways, you've probably heard about we invent a, a disease-resistant grain and save millions of people from starvation, and then we create GMOs that end up harming us in other ways. We have all kinds of other issues that we don't know how to handle, and it seems as though we're really playing whack-a-mole rather than like actually progressing in any specific way. If I weren't committed to living for Christ Jesus, um, I mean, truth is, I would attempt to live it up with these seventy or eighty years that I've got. I mean, I would, I would try to live it to its fullest, as much as I could do before the bad stuff eventually happens to me. I mean, because if, if, you're, if you're anything like me, you looked around in our limited perspective, and if you've read any history, you know that tragedies come to unsuspecting people. Like good, like good people have bad stuff happen to them that they were not prepared for in any way, shape, or form. And it seems as though, as far as I know, most people die at the end of their life. Like it's all going somewhere that they don't continue to get better and better and better, but rather their, their bodies expire and they die. Um, you know, again, if I were a humanist, I'd, I'd really live it up. But if the Bible is true, and from what we've talked about in Ephesians, if Paul is right about who we are and what we were doing and our place within the grand narrative of history, if we are to understand our existence this way, as one point on a continuum of all that will be summed up one day by Jesus Christ at the fullness of time when it's come, then we will have a different perspective. I mean, think, this is all heading somewhere. It's going towards something. And how we get there matters. It's not just life is good, figured out along the way, everyone's going to make it. How we get there matters a great deal. In other words, you and I were made for eternity. We were not made for one generation. You and I were literally made for eternity. You and I also were not made for ourselves. We were made for God. This is amazing, and it, it changes our perspective. Today, I want us to talk about suffering, affliction, trials, difficulties. I want to talk about difficulty in this life. I want to unearth the things that you and I keep hidden 
that we cover with a, a thin veneer of busy life and distractions and this and that and kind of a pseudo-happiness because it's so difficult when we get down underneath it to actually deal with the stuff that we are talking about in our lives that hurt and pain us, cause us to weep and ask the questions, is God real and does he care about how my life works out? I want to preach the anti-prosperity gospel. I want to preach to you the true gospel, the gospel that gives us hope, and therefore the gospel that gives us true joy here and now. So as we do so, I'm going to begin kind of with a a note or a a disclaimer, because I want you to hear me say this clearly. It's right for us to pray for God to do things in our lives. It's right to do so. We see this all over the scriptures. Um, And I want to begin by saying that there are times that God answers these prayers with a yes and gives us the things that we need and desire in this life here and now. Sometimes he brings healing to sick people. Uh, Praise God. Sometimes he gives material resources to those who are in need. Sometimes he provides for a human companion for those who are lonely. But he is not bound to do what you and I think he ought to do with our existence. He is God and God alone. He is wiser than us, he is ancient, he is eternal, and he has all things within his control. He is not bound by our ideas about what he should do for us. He does not promise that he will do any of the things that I just talked about necessarily while we're living here in this life. So what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves seriously about our own existence and what we expect to get from it. I mean, we need to actually ask ourselves what we expect Jesus to do for us. What does Jesus owe us? A good life? A good 70, 80, 90 years? Improved circumstances if we follow him? Is that that the promises that that are throughout Scripture, that if we do that, these 70, 80, 90 years are going to be great? Is, Is that what we ought to expect from our God? If so, answer me these questions. How are we to deal with Christians who live only a short, painful life and die young. Because that happens, you know. How are we to deal with Christians who live and die in poverty, not having what they need, never having enough? How are we to deal with Christians who lose their physical abilities or their mental faculties and suffer with major handicaps the rest of their life? How are we to deal with those Christians who desire all the good gifts of God and yet he doesn't seem to give them to him? What do we do with this? We need to ask the question about suffering as Christians in this world. If we are, as Christians, honest for a moment, there are times in your life, in my life, there are times that we realize that things aren't going to get better before we die. Again, I said I'm a realist. We start to understand what's going on within these short years that we live on this planet. We start to realize that. And some of you in this room actually uh, understand it better than others. You've lived more of your life. You've seen more things than some of us younger people have. And you've come to grips with the fact that there's a difficult existence, a life of sorrows, a life where sufferings aren't always fixed. Many of us are relatively young here in our congregation. We know that. Many of us are still building our lives and and chasing after good and right things. We're ambitious and optimistic for the next 30 or 40 years on this earth. 
For the most part, we, we haven't seen destruction and decay and the difficult things quite as much as several generations before us have seen so front and center. Or the world over has struggled in ways where they can see it much more palpably. We are insulated from much of it, really probably due to our incredible wealth. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. It's not sin to be wealthy. What I'm trying to say, though, is we may not quite have a grasp on how much suffering there is in our world. However, I am not quite sure that that's true, as though we don't know anything of it whatsoever, because I've talked to you, because I've lived now 36 years of my life in the United States, the richest country in the world, with all the wonderful things about it. I'm not sure that all of our insurance and wealth and youth can keep you and I from feeling the weight of sin and its devastating effects on this world. I'm convinced instead that many of us in this room have felt and do feel this weight. Some, again, more than others, but everyone has felt this to one degree or another. I mean, the kids will know this one if you're working on your verses, but Luke 16 tells us, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation, difficulty, in Job 14.1, he says, Job says, man who is born of a woman, that's everybody, is few of days and full of trouble. This is who we are. This is the difficulty. This is the way life is now. And today, what I want to do is talk about hardship, trials, tribulations. Today, I want to talk about sufferings as a Christian. And I want to do so by asking and answering two questions. I'll try to keep it somewhat simple. First, how should a Christian think about Christian suffering? And second, how should a Christian react to this suffering? There's two questions. Number one, how should a Christian think about Christian suffering in general? And how should a Christian react to this suffering? Now, before I start answering these questions, I want to back up for a minute, and I want to say something about suffering, something that's probably intuitive, but I, I have to admit that there are different types of suffering. Certainly different degrees as well, but I'm talking about different types of suffering. Some of us know suffering as a result of our own sinful choices. It's suffering. Some of us may know suffering as a result of persecution from those because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there's a, another enormous category of suffering and trials that are common to everyone that lives in a sin-cursed world. In suffering, Satan tempts us against believing that God is good. And at the same time, God tests our faith in order to grow us in steadfastness. But the Bible, although it speaks to these different kinds of sufferings, it doesn't give us diametrically opposed different responses to these types of sufferings. It doesn't give us a completely different foundational principle to understand persecution as it does suffering as one who is part of the sin-cursed world. It's not exact, but in large part, we treat these things very similarly in the Scriptures. I want us to realize that Scripture, then, does not belittle non-persecution suffering. The trials and difficulties and afflictions that we face day upon day, it doesn't mean that if, if, if they're not by persecution because of our faith, that they don't matter at all. That's a common thought, that somehow it doesn't matter. Like, it isn't only that type of suffering that the Bible speaks to in all of its promises. Now, when I think about this, I, I want to go and think about it. Don't take my word for it. I'm not just going to leave it out there. I want to take you to two places in the Scriptures that show us that this is true. 
that it's not only trials that come from being persecuted for our faith. There are two places. James, well, it's probably more than that, but these are the two I want to show you. James 1, 2 through 3. Romans 8, 16 through 23. We start with James 1, 2, and 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials of various kinds. This is James' shorthand for every difficulty or hardship or suffering imaginable. So persecution? Yeah, definitely. Sickness? Yeah, that too. What about growing up in a non-Christian one-parent home? Yeah, that too. These things fall underneath that umbrella of various trials and difficulties. That's the first text. James is addressing all of these trials, all these sufferings. But then there's a little more difficult one, but really helpful in Romans 8. You have to stick with me for a moment. This one's about suffering with him. That means suffering with Christ. Be very important for us. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says, here we go, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's great. And if children, then heirs. Yes, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, does, does that mean then that we are only heirs of God or children of God if we are persecuted for our faith like, like Jesus, like these, these physical sufferings because of our love for God? Like if, if, if we are somehow persecuted like Christ was, then, then we're definitely heirs of God. Is that what he's getting at here? Now, if that's all he said, we may have to be ending there. But that's not what he says. He continues on in this passage, and it gives us great hope. We may be tempted to think, but the rest of the passage points to us to a different temptation, uh, interpretation. So we know this, at the fall, God subjected creation to futility and corruption. That's verses 20 and 21. If you're looking at Romans 8, 20 and 21 shows that creation was subjected to futility and corruption by God. In verse 22, we find out that creation groans. Now, this is a pretty familiar concept. You understand this. But maybe we don't remember verse 23. Not only does creation groan, we also groan. He shows us that we are experiencing life under the curse of God, waiting eagerly the adoption as sons. Our bodies, like this sin-cursed globe, are subject to decay, to futility, to corruption. I mean, we get sick. uh, Our minds fail us. Our relationships are broken. All kinds of things are distorted because of the curse that is upon us. Thus, this suffering with Christ is not strictly persecution, although it certainly is that, at least. But this suffering with Christ is any kind of suffering that a Christian would endure as they obey and walk with Christ, walking with Him while living under the curse of sin. Let me say that again. Um, This suffering with Christ is any kind of suffering that a Christian would endure as they obey Christ, walking with Him while living under the curse of sin. Now, I start out with this and say this is an important beginning because you and I are definitely going to be comforted when we know that we've suffered for Christ. If we've stood up for Jesus and we've done the right thing and we're mocked for that or hated or persecuted in some way, we know there's definitely some sort of reward for that. And praise God, there is. But when we're talking about more natural suffering, normal things that are hard, difficulties in our lives, we kind of think that that 
maybe we're all in that boat, so I don't know if Jesus really cares too much about those. We're tempted to think as though that they're more like the regular stuff things, they don't, they don't really matter as much. The everyday things, the things that we would consider to be more normal. Some of us have physical property, all right, so that, that, that is subject to decay. Houses and cars and things that do not work the way that they're supposed to, as they once did, as they break down and fail us and bring frustration and extra work. Some of you feel like you are stuck in a certain lifestyle or relationship that you did not choose, and it is hard. Some of you have experienced terrible physical loss, loss of friendships, loss of family, loss of life for those who are near and dear to you. Some of you have never had a loving family or a Christian family or even a two-parent family to grow up in. Some of you have been abused, both physically, verbally, Some of you have diseases and physical ailments that caused you great pain, and you live with that day after day after day. Some of you care for people who cannot care for themselves. Perhaps they have lost their mental faculties or their physical abilities to do the things that they're supposed to do, and you labor under the difficulty of trying to help this person. Some of you have deep, difficult emotional mood swings that tend to make living with other people very difficult something that you struggle with. Some of you struggle with finances, with resources, getting the things that you need. And some of you don't (laughs) have all things that you need. Some of you have children who have walked away from the faith. Some of you have children who have never believed at all. And some of you just wish that you had children at all. Some of us realize that we desire intimacy and friendships and marriage and yet God doesn't give them these ways. What are we to say to these things? This is a sermon for every person in the categories that I just mentioned and beyond. This is for us to understand that life as those who are a part of the creation is different because of the curse of God, because of the sin of mankind. This is a sermon for us. I want you to see that the Bible has much to say when it comes to dealing with various trials, sufferings of different kinds. A Christian should look to almost all the same passages in order to understand suffering, whether it's for persecution or for living in creation that's groaning under the curse of God because of sin. And more than that, we understand that the Bible shows us how to react, whether it's for persecution or whether it's understanding our lives under the curse. So with that being said, starting us off this way, understanding what I'm talking about, the broad nature of the sufferings, I want to ask the first question. How should a Christian think about Christian suffering? Now, I recognize that's a pretty general question, right? The reason I'm doing this is instead of going to one passage only and giving you every different detail that's in that, I want to go even broader. And I want you to see something. The Scriptures speak to our difficult questions. This is more of a topical sermon than normally we're going exegetically through a passage and exposing what's going on there. This one will be actually asking the text a question and see what the Bible says to us. So I'm kind of being pretty broad here. There's a lot of different scripture that I'll pull up. So if you take notes, I'll probably pepper you with quite a bit of different scripture that you can write down. Uh, You can listen, it's fine. You can come back and work through it. But a lot of these will help us to understand this topic. In doing so, I want you to have confidence that the Bible has answers for us when we ask difficult questions in life. Now, I'll admit that I've had a whole week to to think about this topic, 
hours of study to look things up and resources to help me find passages to these questions and to think about them. But I want you to know that, that I, I'm trying myself to be better at opening my Bible and understanding from the Word what I should be thinking. But it's no different for you. For you as well, you need to open the Scriptures, think about the passages, study, talk to one another, search the Scriptures so that we can have the answers to our questions. Uh, but I will tell you this, the, provide, the Bible provides us all that we need to live a godly life. And even if it helps us to answer some of these questions difficultly, it does answer us. Now, I'll give you this, though. Sometimes the answer may not be what you expected or what you like. It may be the opposite. It may simply be, trust God. It may be simply, be patient. It may simply be something you don't really like to do. The Scriptures will show us as it forms us. And I'm not talking about it as though it's some sort of instruction manual. And I turn to 63a and I look here and, oh, there's the answer for my question. It's a living book that continues to teach us both who we are and who our God is. But we can have confidence, utter confidence in the fact that not a friend necessarily, not a, you know, an expert, not a book, not the internet site, not all these other things should be the thing that actually grounds us, but the Scriptures should. It is our authority. The answer may not be satisfactory to us, but the answer will always be sufficient for us to live godly lives. So let me try to answer this first question. How should a Christian think about Christian suffering? Let's go back all the way to the beginning. Let's start by saying this. Suffering is an effect of sin, a type of judgment of God because of our sin and rebellion against him. I'll say that again. Suffering is an effect of sin a type of judgment of God because of our sin and rebellion against him. In the opening chapters of the Bible, man is given one prohibition, which he breaks. You know this. He is told not to eat from the tree. And what does he do? He eats from the tree and disobeys this God. And after man sins, God pronounces his death that he said would happen if they were to eat from this tree. And it seems as though as he does this, he pronounces this death, showing them that there will be death for them, but it's not ultimately only physical or spiritual. As he kind of explains this, it's broader than that. It looks as though death is all over the place, decay and futility and corruption. Let me read from Genesis 3, 16 through 19. He says this to the woman first, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now we, we know from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, it didn't only stay at Adam and Eve. We know that it, in, in Adam all die, and because of that, death is spread to all men. This is a type of judgment of God. Now, I'm, I want to be careful here. We're not talking about some sort of final judgment. No, it's not a judgment that accomplishes justice for sin. 
nor judgment that can atone for our sin, but it is an effect of sin that causes difficulty and hardship and death. Paul talks about it more in detail in Romans chapter 8. Let me just read this, verse 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. If you're not clear about this, then let me say it is God who has subjected all of creation to futility. He has proclaimed the curse. He has placed creation in a place where we experience corruption. And it is all because of our sin against Him. So first of all, suffering is an effect of sin. And it's tied up to God's work of subjecting all creation to futility and corruption after the fall of humanity. But the second thing I want to point out is this. Suffering is a form of judgment for the church. Now, I don't like to hear that. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? I'll say it again. Judgment, I'm sorry, suffering is a form of judgment for the church. Now, Chris, what do you mean like that? Didn't, didn't Jesus take our penalty? Didn't Jesus on the cross receive all of the wrath of God so that, like, that's, didn't, didn't that take care of our sin? Are you saying somehow that this judgment that we suffer in our life and we kind of pay for this? No, 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 no. I'm very clear with what the wording is saying here. When, we, when most of us hear judgment, we think punitive action, penalty, right? That's what we normally think. But that's not what he means here. I'm going to turn to Peter. And I think this text in 1 Peter 4 is staggering. It, it, it wows us to say, this is what you mean by suffering. In 1 Peter 4, he explains that Christian suffering is judgment, but not like you and I may think. Rather, there's another understanding in part here. It's like a refiner's fire not set for destruction or to incinerate, but rather to purify those who are truly Christ's. It's a refiner's fire that isn't like the suffering for unbelievers. Now, don't get me wrong. Certainly, unbelievers suffer on earth, but there is coming a judgment for them that is not like what we are experiencing. So listen to this. 1 Peter 4, 16 through 19, he says this. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you catch what he said in verse 17? Uh, He says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, but I'm going to have to summarize it here and take us to the fact that this is being drawn from Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. To sum it up, his point is saying this, that God will judge Israel, his people. But for those who trust Yahweh, this God, those who know and submit to him, or in our case, we know exactly who he is in Jesus Christ, for those of us who trust Christ as Savior and Lord, we are not experiencing punishment. But Malachi 3, 2 says that we will experience the refiner's fire, a type of judgment that purifies us, that makes us more precious than gold. In other words, this fire is from God, and for the Christian, we can see 
that it's not meant to destroy at all, but to purify, to refine, and to make us more like him. So not only is suffering an effect of sin, it's also a judgment for purifying the church. This thing, the, the, these two things are very helpful. We kind of look back, right? We look back at the fall and see our origin and how this all started. And then we see the present agent of the purifying work of the fire, the difficulty and judgment that's making us more like Christ. But the Bible is not silent about helping us look forward. It helps us look forward so that we might understand suffering as well. Let's go to 2 Corinthians now, so where we started out here. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. We've said that suffering was an effect of sin against God, that suffering is a form of judgment for the church, a refiner's fire. But now I want us to see, number three, that suffering for the Christians can only make sense when it is compared to the eternal weight of glory. This is really significant. Let's start in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, Paul seems to be helping us view our suffering in light of a larger context. Now, if, if you've been here through Ephesians, this shouldn't surprise you one bit, especially the last sermon we kind of worked through the whole purpose of what Ephesians is about, placing us in the midst of cosmic reconciliation, giving us a place and helping us understand our role within this. And here, he seems to be telling us that what we are experiencing, get this, is momentary. It is brief. It is short in this way. It will not last forever. Now, it may not seem like it for those of us who suffer and do suffer and will suffer for years on end. I understand this. I've experienced a small bit of life. It may not seem as though this makes any sense here. Years and years of intense suffering and affliction, harm and painfulness and hardship. But was, is Paul lying to us? He's telling us something that's not true? No. He's saying that these sufferings are brief. They are momentary. I want to make a comment here that's helpful, I think. At this point, many will say that Paul is downplaying affliction. Almost as though, it, almost like, guys, I know, you're, I know you're struggling, but it's not that big of a deal. Almost like, hey, cowboy up, get tough, and deal with your sufferings. It's gonna be, you can make it through. That is not what he is doing here. Think about Paul's own life and the depths of discouragement and struggle and pain that he went through. You talk about afflictions. Of course persecuted. He is imprisoned. He is beat. He is stoned. If you remember, he's shipwrecked. He's probably experienced starvation. All these different things, common sufferings for Paul and understanding the depths. His own thorn in the flesh, which he asks to be removed, and it isn't. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. He understands suffering. So as Paul says it's momentary and it's light, he's not lying to us. He's not lying to us at all. He's not trying to say, hey, I'm just, I know you suffer a little bit, but you've never been through what I've been through. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here at all. Paul's not telling us to cowboy up and get tough. He recognizes that these are true sufferings, but he's helping us in the midst of our deep pain and suffering to see that it will not last forever. It won't. Jesus 
of course, has also experienced this suffering. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. He says, and we already know plenty about his own life, and we can kind of recall all the things, but listen to 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible does not belittle our weaknesses or our affliction. He's not saying that our suffering is a small thing in this life. He is saying that our suffering, our weaknesses, need to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. He's saying we're not looking at the right thing. He is saying, don't lose heart. I know your body and mind and relationships are falling apart. They're wasting away. But remember that as Christians, our our inner self, our truest identity is being renewed day by day. It isn't falling apart. It's growing. The sufferings you are experiencing here are real. But in comparison to all that you are living for, these things are light. Consider for a moment an unbeliever They're living their best life now. And so the struggles that they have are real, but it will only get worse. But for you and I who have faith in Jesus Christ alone, have trusted Him in His salvific salvific work as King, what we have to come is glorious and eternal. Notice also here that these sufferings, they're, they're real, and when we compare them, they are light, momentary afflictions. Notice that Paul says that this suffering has an active role in preparing us. If you take a look there, he says it's working in us. It's beating us down, grinding away at our outer man with the intent and promise of spectacular glory, eternal weight. Does he not say in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison? I mean, when you compare the sufferings of this life, the real ones, the difficult ones, the ones that rock you to the core and make you ask whether or not you have been forsaken or if God cares at all about you or if it can get any better than this, when you compare these sufferings to life in God in reality for eternity, the comparison seems ridiculous. It shouldn't be mentioned almost. Not downplaying the sufferings as though they're nothing because they are something. But he says, I want you to look at the bigger picture. I can remember when I was uh, a young man, my, one, of my, one of my first jobs that I actually made money for, I, I worked for a school building, and I, um, during the summertime, I uh, did a floor cleaning where we'd strip all the wax off and we'd re-wax the floors. A lot of buffing, all this. And I, uh, it was a big job. I, paid, I got paid five fifteen an hour, minimum wage at that point. Um, it was a fine job. Uh, I was thankful for some money. I didn't have very much money, but I was thankful for what I got. Let me take that scenario for a moment. If I came back the next summer, which I did not do, that I went to a different job next summer. But if I came back the next summer, and my boss came in and said, okay, Chris, you did a really good job. You know, it's gross getting down on your hands and knees, cleaning this stuff up, doing it, and you've done a great job. We want to give you a raise. And not, are we gonna, we're not going to pay you $5.15 an hour. We're going to pay you $175 an hour. I mean, right, we'd all go like, whoa, that's Quick sign up before we realize we've made a mistake. Like, yeah, I, I'll take the 175 an hour. Thank you. That would be a ridiculous but great uh, increase for me, right? Let's say I come back the next summer. 
And the next summer, again, my boss comes and looks at me and he says, I want you to come to my office. I want to talk about your pay again. It looks like you're doing a really good job. We're really thankful for the work that you do. We want to give you a, a raise again. We want to pay you $1.75 million an hour. <laughs> now we're just getting ridiculous. Okay, Chris, like this is, this is silly at this point, right? But can you not still compare the two? Five fifteen an hour? $1.75 million an hour. It's ridiculous, but like you can compare it. I realize that this illustration breaks down, right? I know what we're talking about. We're not working for eternal pay. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to earn our reward somehow like we earn a paycheck. However, this illustration helps us to understand the ridiculous nature of comparing our light affliction to an eternal weight of glory. You and I think that $1.7 million per hour is crazy. Paul says that our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I just gave you a a ridiculous comparison. He says it's beyond all of that. You cannot compare these two. I know you can't see it now, but what we have in God exceeds every possible imagination of wonder, excitement, pleasure, and glory. We've got, we, we've got to believe God. This is what he says life is like in him. We've got to trust what he says, not our senses, not what the world tells us, not what we feel inside our inner being is telling us. No, we must believe the truth of the word. We must believe him. We can't be blinded by our present terrible, awful sufferings and experiences. We cannot allow them to shake uh, us to shake our fist at God and give up and just roll over. We must not lose heart. One, one author simply said this, if Christians are prepared to be identified with Christ in a fallen world and accept whatever sufferings and afflictions they may thus encounter, they will share in his glory. Oh, Christian, brother, sister, do not despise your sufferings. Do not think that your sufferings are meaningless. They're not. They point us back to the depths of our sin. They presently work on us, refining us, building our faith, increasing our steadfastness. But they are also preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This life is real. It's not just fake. It's not just a shadow on the cave wall. It's real. It matters. But the things that are in it are transient. They're going away our possessions, our health, our relationships, all of these things are moving on. But you and I were made for eternity, for forever, for God. This is who we were to be. The things that are unseen, these things that the unbelievers around us scoff at, think they're absolutely ridiculous. The inner man who is united to Jesus Christ, who is being renewed day by day, is eternal. As if we're living for this life only, we've missed it. We've not believed Jesus. We've thought that somehow this is the best it gets. It's not really a new message though, is it? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just encouraging us to believe, to trust God, to have faith in him, to live by faith. And Paul actually makes this incredibly clear in Romans 8. By the way, if you need another passage to encourage you in the midst of suffering, read Romans 8. My goodness, it's just full of encouragement to help us understand who we are, positioned in Christ, and what we're really living for. 
Let me read verse 18 through 25 for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here we go. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. This is us. Hope that is seen is not hope. I don't see this. I can't can't see the eternal. I can't see the unseen things. He says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We believe. This is the Christian walk, guys. This is us trusting that his word is true. obeying him in every area, even though we cannot see the unseen things. This is faith. This attitude and thought process then really leads us to the second question. The second question is, okay, how should a Christian react to the suffering? We've talked about suffering in general quite extensively here. And, And probably you can right now yourself fill in some blanks. You can probably offer up several different ways that you think that we ought to respond. Knowing these things to be true, we should live like this. But again, I want to go to the Bible and show you that we have answers here that tell us exactly how we should respond. There's this wonderful thing in the midst of the storm, when the fire is hot and when you feel most alone and beat down, it can be very difficult for us to lay hold of our rock, our God. So what I want to do I want to give us some handholds, some places that have markers on them to go back to and say, this is where I hold on to God and I realize he is true, he is right. I want us to see some scriptures that can help us, help us so that we can come back over and over again and understand and know and hold on to the rock who is our God. These are five responses then to the Christian suffering. Number one, do not despise your sufferings. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. You already know the Beatitudes, but Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve, who struggle, right? For they shall be comforted. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, his paraphrase is really good. He says, You're blessed when you are at the end of your rope. Why? Because those who experience these sufferings, understanding them in light of being a blessed person, a Christian, will have joy, will be a kingdom heir, will be truly comforted for eternity, realizing that they were made for eternity. So then, brothers and sisters, don't despise sufferings. You are blessed because of them. Number two, comfort others who are in the same affliction. 2 Corinthians is great for this. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, I want you to listen to this word. He's telling all about God of, the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, your suffering is not for nothing. 
God comforts us in our affliction, but he does so that we can do the same, so that we can comfort others. Not so that we can just pat people on the back either. We talked about this earlier. It's not just like a random encouragement. He actually says, with the comfort that we have received from God, we actually comfort one another by pointing to God, our only hope, to come along to our brother or sister and say, I know that you are going through deep affliction and suffering, but there's an answer. Hope in God. Know this God. God comforts us, and so we have been given the job as witnesses to show that there's a better kingdom, an eternal hope of glory in Christ. So as John Piper would say, don't waste your suffering. Use this as an opportunity to comfort another, comfort those who are in affliction. Number three, read 1 Peter 4. <laughs> Just read 1 Peter 4, especially verses 12 through 19. I mean, the whole passage is wonderful, but in verse 13, we learn that we are to rejoice in sharing Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in the midst of trial and tribulation and hardship. Rejoice what are you talking about? Rejoice in Christ's sufferings so that we may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. And then in verse 19, not only to rejoice, he says, we learn that our response to suffering as Christians is to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. This is what we are to do. And he fills this out all here in chapter 4. It helps us very much. But these two things, to rejoice in Christ's sufferings and sharing them and to entrust our souls to God, the God of eternity. All right, number four, we need to see sufferings as an occasion to praise God. Now, I, I think that I would do a poor job to talk about suffering from a topical sermon if I didn't mention our boy Job, right? The king sufferer. Job, the whole book is about his deep, terrible, awful suffering. If you remember the, book, uh, the beginning of the book of Job, do you remember how he first responds to the immense tragedy, the affliction that he suffers? Let me read Job 1, 20 through 21. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, my goodness, deep grief, and forsook God. No. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Talk about someone who understands perspective. What's happening is all this stuff means to be taken away from Job. And what does he do? He recounts the fact that he came into this world with nothing. All the stuff that he has, all stuff that he lost, he was given. And it's occasion for praising God. God, you gave me all this stuff in the first place. I bless you you and you alone. He uses his suffering amazingly to be that which gives praise and honor and glory to God. We need to learn from Job. This is right. We need to respond in praise and rejoicing to God. Number five. I think this is one of the most practical ones. Man, it's so good. Read and believe and use the Psalms. Read and believe and use the Psalms. They're, they're full of so much good, difficult, heavy, weighty subject matter that calls out to God. I'm just going to give you two for your consideration. My goodness, we, we sang one this morning, Psalm 130, and then Jordan read one, Psalm 42. And in the moments, we probably enjoyed parts of it, 
But I, I want you to look back and see that these things can be a rock for our souls to see that our hope is in God alone, not in just some nice truisms about what we think maybe God is like somehow. This gives us words. In Psalm 130, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, this guy is struggling. He's way down deep in a pit. He calls for God to hear his voice. But then he goes on to talk about God's vast righteousness and his mercy, his love and forgiveness, and he realizes that there is only one right response. And it's the response that you and I need to use. Listen to verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 teaches us to hope in God. Now Psalm 42. Mark Psalm 42 and use it. The writer has the proper view of what's really going on, and especially of what he needs. Jordan began by this passage. He read this. He really needs God. He says that it's like a deer running away from a hunter for miles and miles, panting and needing breath and needing cool water for refreshment to his soul. Instead, if you remember what he said, what I'm getting, I'm eating tears. What I've had instead are the salty tears. That's been my food, not the fresh waters of you. He thirsts after God. In our suffering, we realize that we must have him. We need him. We must long for the one that can provide for us sustaining power and true food for our souls. It's God. But Psalm 42 also has, if I can say it this way, a, a chorus that is worth memorizing, that you need to have deep inside of you. He gives us these words, both in verse 5 and verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Yeah, he is preaching the gospel to himself. He is not allowing his own like difficulties and struggles to kill him. He preaches back to himself and says, why are you cast down, my soul? He says, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's what I said at the beginning. I want to preach the anti-prosperity gospel. I want to preach the truth. That's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel to himself. Hope in God. I shall again praise him. He's my salvation. He is my God, my covenant Lord. Don't miss the fact that you and me have the fulfillment of this sure promise. We do not hope in a God who has not shown himself to be true. We can praise him. We can hope in him. But brothers and sisters, we, uh, as we look at this, have seen him provide our salvation by giving us himself. Before this in, in this, in this psalm, Christ did not come yet. But now we look as God has actually provided in himself for us. Our hope and confidence is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our salvation is secure. He has conquered spiritual death. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see this very important thing. All of those who are in Christ have this salvation and this covenant love of their God. Uh, you, you couldn't miss this, right? We have to go back to the gospel. This gracious blessing, this gift giving that God has given to us in himself. So don't miss that our hope in suffering isn't some sort of groundless optimism. 
No, we should be realists. And our optimism should be thrown away and we should hope in God. It's not groundless. It is based in the gracious blessing and gift-giving of God to his people. And so I'll end by quoting Paul's words in Romans 8. In the last few verses, he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. We trust him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the truth that you give us in your word. We know that, God, we do not deserve your grace, your gracious gift of your Son. Lord, would you cause our hearts to praise you? Would we see the big picture and would you instill in us belief and trust in you and so that we may answer with the Bible writers that say, hope in God, soul. Don't be cast down, but look to him, the one who is our hope and our salvation, the one who is our true rock to hold on to in the storm. We love you and we ask you, God, that you would do this work in us so that we might not be broken down and roll over and forget you and forsake you. Hold us fast, Lord Jesus. We trust you completely. It's in your name we pray. Amen.